new things. And did you catch that little plea uh, for help uh, with uh, just one Spear student, who student, lovely girl, who just needs some temp a temporary place to live with a family. So if that's you, go and find Dan or one of the Spear uh, coaches after the... Um, service. Anyway, we are uh, in our series in Luke, running up to Easter. Um, we are looking at the events in Luke, um, running up to the crucifixion and the uh, resurrection. Uh, so would you turn in your Bibles to Luke 22? That's where we are at the moment, halfway through Luke 22, and that's page 1058. And uh, Mark last week took us through the Last Supper, the final supper with the disciples. And this week we have a rather different scene. From that peaceful and quite intimate scene of the Last Supper uh, in the upper room, we now enter a darker and more intense period as events gather momentum during this last night before Jesus' crucifixion. And our passage today covers three different scenes in two different places, first of all in the Garden of Gethsemane and then in the courtyard, all in the dead of night. The first scene in the garden as Jesus prays, uh, the second when Judas betrays him, and the third in the courtyard when Peter denies him. And I've given us three options as we look at these three scenes together. The first one, victim or volunteer. The second one, remorse or repentance and the third, failure or follower. So, first of all, Jesus. We're looking at Jesus, victim or volunteer. Was he a victim in all of this, in all of these events, or was he a volunteer? And the first scene takes us into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Jesus leading his disciples there after their supper together. Jesus desperate to find a quiet place, it seems, to, to, to spend time with his father, his disciples, desperate, it seems, to find a quiet place for a few hours' kip. Uh, let's just read it together, shall we? So we're going to start from verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And as Jesus enters the garden, it seems as though a darkness and a horror comes down on him way beyond anything he could have anticipated. Our passage says, did you notice, he was in such anguish that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Uh, I mean, we sometimes say to people, don't we, when emotions are running high, we, we say, okay, okay, you know, don't burst a blood vessel. And we say that because actually it's a known fact, isn't it, that when people are in a state of extreme stress or anxiety, capillaries near the surface of the skin can actually burst. So this description shouldn't surprise us. As Jesus prays with such intensity and fervor, blood mixes with his sweat. 
And it, it shows us what mental and emotional and, of course, spiritual agony he must have been in. And it's interesting that at this point, Jesus doesn't seem to be facing death with the same sort of calm or poise or peace that even many of his followers who died for their faith later in later years had. We read how many of them went to their death, you know, singing hymns as they were fed to the lions or, or raising their hands in prayer as they were burnt at the stake. So why do the gospel writers describe in such detail Jesus' desperate internal struggle as he faces death? And the answer surely is because this was a very different death than anybody else faced, ever faced before or since. This was a very different death. And Jesus asked his father that this cup might be taken from him. Verse 42. Now, what is this cup he talks about here? Well, the cup in ancient times was like, basically like the electric chair. It represented a judicial death. So, for example, we are told Socrates was executed by being made to drink a cup of poison. But the Bible, it, in the Bible, it goes one step further, referring to the cup as God's own judicial wrath on injustice and evildoing. So, for instance, Isaiah 51 speaks of the cup of God's wrath that makes men stagger. And Tim Keller comments, the reason that Jesus didn't die as gracefully as later Christian martyrs is because none of them were facing the cup. When Jesus speaks of the cup, it shows he knows that he's facing not just physical torture and death, He's about to experience the full divine wrath on the evil and sin of all humanity. The judicial wrath of God is about to come down on him. Jesus had gone into the garden to be with his father before, before his betrayal, before his death, but hell rather than heaven opened up before him, and he staggered. And that's why he asks, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But his prayer isn't a sort of shrinking back from the physical suffering and death that he's about to endure. It's more a recognition of the horror of what's about to happen to him as the full force of God's wrath was going to hit him. And here in the dark with the disciples sleeping, it's as though the father is letting him know what he's in for. Jonathan Edwards puts it like this. It's as though God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace so that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. If Jesus didn't fully know before he took the cup and drank it, it wouldn't have properly been his own act as a human being. But when he took the cup, knowing what he did, it made his love to us infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. Jesus went to the cross willingly, not as an unfortunate victim of human justice or divine cruelty. He went willingly, voluntarily, knowing what he was heading for, willingly surrendering to the Father's will. And yes, he known throughout his life that he would suffer and die. He talked about it many times, didn't he? But it's as though only now, with this experience in the garden, he truly grasps what he's about to endure. And so when he goes to the cross for us, he goes with first-hand knowledge of what will happen. 
he now fully understands the Father's will. And that makes Jesus' action the greatest act of love in the history of the world. And that makes his prayer all the more extraordinary. You know, knowing what he's heading towards, he has to ask, Father, you know, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But knowing also what he has to do, he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. You know, it's the most stunning and unexpected prayer. A prayer that's brutally honest, not hiding anything. And at the same time, absolutely submitted to the will of God. You know, there's no cover-up, there's no false piety, there's no self-pity, but also no hesitation. As he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. At this moment, Jesus sets his face to the cross, knowingly, willingly, selflessly, and deliberately. Not a victim, but a volunteer, in active obedience to his Father's will and as the ultimate act of love for you and me. And as Jesus commits to this most monumental of prayers, where do we find the disciples? Sleeping. And Jesus has to say to them, as he might well say to some of us today, you know, why are you such dozy Christians? You know, why are you so complacent, so prayerless, so passive? And that's the least of their failures on this final night, isn't it? We now move on to the, the terrible betrayal, the, the complete desertion, the awful denials. Spiritual failure on a massive scale by two of the disciples in particular, Judas and Peter. And superficially, these two had so much in common. You know, both disciples in Jesus' inner circle and both guilty of betraying him. Judas with a kiss, perhaps the most famous kiss in history. Let me just read verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, this is in the garden still, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Then Peter, swearing on his life that he never knew his Lord, completely disowning him out of sheer cowardice. Just look on to verse 56. A servant girl saw Peter seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Both men betraying their Lord. Both men brought to the verge of self-despair and self-loathing by what they'd done. Both men consumed by guilt and regret and humiliation. But that's where the similarity ends. Peter, as we know, was restored against all expectation, even his, and has even gone down in, the, in, the his, in history as one of the greatest apostles. You know, he was sent out. Jesus sent him out. Judas committed suicide and has gone down in history as one of the greatest apostates. He turned away. I mean, what a contrast. So why is that? What in the end makes these men so different from each other? Because, quite frankly, they both failed massively. That's not in question. It wasn't their failure that marked them out. It was surely their response to failure. Because we all fail. 
But spiritual failure isn't the end of the world or the end of our, the, our journey of faith. Not unless we choose it to be. In a very real sense, it's not failure that condemns us, but the way we respond to failure. And yes, you know, of course, there's a difference between Judas and Peter's betrayal. Judas deliberately betrayed Jesus, deliberately betrayed Jesus for money. It was an active betrayal. Peter simply gave in under pressure. You know, he was caught off guard. Two different kinds of failure. But we, we today, we still fall into both. We so easily fall into both, don't we? Active rebellion against God on the one hand, or passive surrender to peer pressure on the other. But Judas didn't perish because he'd failed. He didn't perish because he betrayed Jesus, you know, in that most callous and awful way. No, he, he perished because he wouldn't repent. This is where Judas is so different from Peter. I mean, do we honestly think that Jesus wouldn't have forgiven Judas straight away without hesitation if he turned and repented for his betrayal? But there was no repentance, only remorse, regret at what he'd done. Judas was sorry for himself, but not sorry before God. As someone said, remorse keeps its pride and loses its soul in the process. Whereas with Peter, with Peter it becomes very clear that his tears in verse 62 are tears of true repentance. So remorse or repentance. And finally, failure or followers. Failure or followers. Have you ever thought why we have this detailed account record of Peter's failure? Have you ever, have you ever wondered why? Why is it told in such full technicolor in every single gospel? I mean, it must be. The only reason is because Peter must have told it. He must have recounted it to others. He's the only one who could have known about this incident in such detail. He must have told people about it. I mean, had this been you or me, you know, we would have, we would, would we ever have told anyone? You know, just think for a moment, you know, think for a moment, just think to yourself of your greatest moral, moral or spiritual collapse. I know what mine is. There's no way I'm going to tell you. It's none of your business. But think about yours. Have you ever told anyone? Would you ever willingly make it public property? Peter openly admitted his worst failure because he wants us to know that right at the heart of one of Jesus' most prominent and loved disciples is moral weakness. There's spiritual failure there. And he's to, here to tell us He's here to tell us personally that I, Peter, the rock, was and am an abject spiritual failure. I thought I was strong. I told Jesus that others may fail him, but not me. I told him I'd lay down my life for him. I swore I'd never desert him. I was proud and self-confident. I wanted to make Jesus proud of me. I wanted to deserve his love by doing something bold and brave. And through this terrible night and these awful denials, this awful failure, Peter realized that he could never earn Jesus' love. Jesus wins our love. We never win his. Jesus doesn't love Peter because he's bold and brave and impressive. Jesus loves Peter despite his unfaithfulness and cowardice and failure. And our love for Jesus must, must be built on the same humiliating self-knowledge that we're exactly the same. 
we're exactly the same. You see, Peter proudly refused to accept Jesus' warning back in verse 34. Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you ever knew me. Peter couldn't have been given a more clear warning, but he chose to ignore it. And that was his first step, the first step to his fall. His pride, you see, led to prayerlessness, along with the other disciples in the garden, which meant he was unprepared when the attack came. Pride, prayerlessness, unprepared. It's a classic pattern for most of us. And don't we all see ourselves in this failure? You know, that self-sufficiency. I can do this on my own. This lack of self-knowledge. A refusal to say, you know, I just don't trust myself in this. A lack of humility, thinking to ourselves, I'm different from the rest. A flabbiness in our prayer lives. Our knees don't get much floor time. And verse 61 must be one of the most dramatic moments in the Bible. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now, what do you think was in that look? Was it reproach? Was it disappointment? Was it condemnation? Was it disdain? I suspect more than anything, Peter saw love there. Love for a failure. Love born not out of admiration, but love born out of a heart whose very nature is love, who pours love into us when we deserve the very opposite. That look that makes us weep for our sins, our failings. That look that reminds us Christ not only took our pain on the cross, but he took our shame. And with that look, you know, a look that Peter must have remembered for the rest of his life, he knew, Peter knew without a doubt that he was deeply and undeservedly loved. And with that look came tears of deep repentance, verse 62. He went outside and wept bitterly. You know, not simply tears of remorse that would have left him, left him in the same place of guilt and shame as Judas, but tears of deep repentance that changed him forever. So are we more like Judas or Peter? You know, which way will we go to cope with our failure? Because, you know, we've all disappointed Jesus. We've all betrayed him. We've all sold him for silver. We've all denied him. We've all had that same proud, independent spirit that tells us we know better. We're different from the rest. But we're no different. We're no different from Judas or Peter. And it's not our failure that marks us out as a Judas or Peter, but our response to that failure. You know, are our hearts full of faith or full of despair? Are our tears full of remorse or repentance? And these three scenes in the garden and in the courtyard, you know, they are shocking. They've shocked me yet again as I, as I reread them and studied them this week. What we see of Jesus as he sets his face to the cross, you know, the intensity, the horror, the anguish of his prayer. What we see of the disciples as they, they fail him one by one. And at this point in the story, it feels as though the enemy has the upper hand. Even Jesus, we're told, needs an angel from heaven to strengthen him in this hour. 
And as the enemy closes in, he brings about betrayal and denial and chaos and failure. Jesus says in verse 53, this is your hour when darkness reigns. You know, this is a dark period of time. It's very dark. And for a moment, we see Jesus recoiling from the horror of the cross. We see him isolated and alone in his worst hour. We see him betrayed to the darkness. We see him deserted by his closest friends. But through it all, Jesus remains utterly sovereign. Even in the apparent victory of evil, he surrenders himself voluntarily, now knowing full well what lies ahead of him. He's obedient. In his darkest and most terrible hour, he bows to the Father's control. Not my will, but yours be done. He stays calm. He stays calm when chaos is breaking out all around him as Judas and that mob enter the garden. He, Jesus even stops the mayhem, verse 51. No more of this, he says. And in the middle of all that chaos, he, he stops and heals a man's ear. He's forgiving. He doesn't condemn either Judas or Peter for their actions or the disciples for sleeping. We've seen Jesus not a victim, but a volunteer. And we've seen Peter failing, but we know it's not the end of the story. And we've seen Judas, remorseful, but not repentant. And we know the end of that story too. And what about us? How often do we feel, can we feel that life is against us? You know, when everything is stacked up against us, do we say, I'm a victim of my circumstances? I'm just a victim. Do we blame God? Do we turn on others? What do we do? And when we fail, when we mess up, do we just wallow in it? Do we give up? Or do we get up and follow? In fact, it, it shouldn't really be failures or followers. It should be failures and followers. You know, we can be both. We are both. And when we're re rebelliously disobedient and defiant of God, when we've deliberately gone our own way, done our own thing, do we just express remorse? Or do we know, do we know what those tears of repentance feel like? Because we have a savior. We have a savior who understands our weaknesses. We have a savior who set his face to the cross, knowingly, willingly, deliberately, and selflessly, and most of all, lovingly. He did it out of love. Not because he had to, but because he chose to be part of God's amazing rescue plan for you and me. So shall we stand? And as the band comes up, let's just... Take a moment, just maybe personally. I think this needs a personal, more intimate response for each one of us. Just as we consider for ourselves what God has done for us. What Jesus set his face to do for each of us. Because he loves us. And some of us need us, that spoken over us again this morning. And just, just in your own way, just let's close our eyes. Let's just focus in on this. It's just between me and you, Lord. You know where I am. And if I need to know that love, that deep, 
an undeserved love that you want to pour into my life yet again. Lord, I want to receive it now. I don't want to go on doubting. I don't want to go on trying to earn your love, trying to prove myself. I want to just receive it. And if that's you, I just encourage you, just as we sing this next song, just to receive again, believe again, that there's no, there's nothing you can do. God's done it all. And if those, are those of us who feel that we are unlovable, we know we failed, we know too well that we failed, and we feel maybe in some way, some sense, that we feel there's no way back, no real way back, we'll never get back to where we were before, we've spoiled things, we've spoiled that relationship. And again, God wants to say, you just have to come to me, you just have to come to me on your knees and just tell me, tell me about it. Because there is a way back. And there is hope. And the enemy would like to keep us in that place of failure. Keep us in that place of saying, there's, I'm just, there's nothing I can do. Keep us in that place of self-pity and blame and pride. And God teaches us here what true repentance looks like. And true restoration. And so, Lord, we want to give up our independent spirits, our self-sufficiency, our pride. And for those of us who find grace a hard thing, help us, Lord, help us just to receive right now. Help us to receive the love, the love that sent Jesus to the cross for us. And right now, I just have a sense that for some of us, we need to say that prayer, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I just had a sense that for some of us, we are, we are in a struggle. We're in a struggle. And we've been fighting God. We've been wanting maybe some particular thing. We've been asking a prayer, asking for something, and we can't see it happening. And uh, God is just saying, look, say that prayer. Yet not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Submit to me. He's a father who we can trust. He's a father who loves us. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. <laughs>